I'd like to have uh, Claude Bennett come and read the scripture for this morning's sermon. Thank you, Claude. Okay. Good morning. I'll be reading from Luke chapter 1, verse 5 through 17. It says, In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest of Abia's division named Zechariah. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. When his division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and burn incense. At the hour of incense, the whole assembly of the people was praying outside. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the sons of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous, to make ready the Lord a prepared people. When I was a kid, my my father was a pastor of a little town, uh, of a a church in a little town called Lancaster, Ohio. We were there for a few years. Every year at our church, we would put on this Christmas, or not, not a Christmas production, a, a passion play, Jesus of Nazareth, it was called. Um, the first production went really well, and so we ended up taking it and, and making an amphitheater outside, and so we had this small town, and so folks from the town would come, and we would do this play every night for a couple months. Um, and... There were, obviously, whenever there's a play, there are some highly coveted roles. Pontius Pilate was a, a role that people wanted to play. Um, there was a, a, a character named Barabbas, who was the thief that was on the cross, or that was not on the cross, the thief that was released when, when Jesus, right before Jesus was crucified. And he, his character had blown into a very elaborate character with fighting and sword fighting and horse riding. There were camels. They had sheep. Yeah, it was intense. I mean, in a small town, too, there wasn't a lot to do, and so... You know, you had to entertain yourselves. Um, it was a great, it was a great production. Then there were also, of course, the minor roles. The uh, the centurion's son, um, who uh, in the play, if, if you recall, the centurion's son dies. Um, so that role didn't require a whole lot of acting skill, um, um, because he just sort of lay on a cot most of the time. But then there were also the lesser-known apostles, the Herodians an assortment of shepherds, Pharisees, tax collectors, and money changers, and so forth. The director of the play always insisted that there were no small parts. But 
it was hard to believe him when your character was called townsperson number 29 or uh, royal guard number 17. Uh, nevertheless, we all loved being a part of this play. One thing that I loved about the play, and I still love about the play, was the unintended comedy that it would often produce. I don't know if you've ever seen an amateur production, but often things happen that no one really planned for. For example, the part of Barabbas, the much-coveted much role of Barabbas, was played by a, a farm boy named Billy Stevens. And Billy uh, had fair, fair hair, light hair, fair skin, freckles, um, and the, 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 the hair and makeup folks just didn't think that he looked Middle Eastern enough to be, you know, so they gave him a, a dark curly wig and they put some base on him and they, you know, kind of gave him a, a, a more authentic look, which was great until the night that he dove into the little pond that we had built that was meant to represent the Sea of Galilee. He dove into the pond, a brunette, and he emerged a strawberry blonde and his wig was floating beside him in the river, in the pond, as he fought off the Imperial Army. <laughs> um, I think the crowd loved that moment. There was also the funeral crier. There was a guy who was supposed to lead the funeral procession uh, of, the, of, the Romans, of the Roman soldier's son. And his, he had one line, and he was supposed to repeat it. And he was supposed to say, Make way, make way, a young boy has just died. Well, this guy, I think he felt like that line did not have enough creative pizzazz. And I think he also felt like there should be a little poetry to his line. So he changed his line on opening night and he came out of the side of the, of the stage and started saying, make way, make way, a young dead boy has just passed away. And the crowd's like, um, okay. Then my favorite was the night, so now this is an outdoor production and it's out in the field, okay, out in the country. There was the night that there was a local man driving along the, 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 the road that bordered the church property. He looked over towards the amphitheater. He didn't know there was a production going on, apparently. And at the end of the production, you know, the, the, there's, there's this point of Jesus' resurrection. And, and, and our, we wanted it to be dramatic. And so we had Jesus up on a, about a 40-foot scaffolding with a white-hot spotlight shining on him. And the scaffolding was hidden, you know, camouflaged by trees. So this guy is driving down the road, looks over, and sees a man in a robe 40 feet above the ground and uh, drove, ended up driving into the ditch. Um, he <laughs> thought it was the end of the world. Uh, I do think that the church covered a part of the property damage to his vehicle as a result of that crash. So uh, everybody wanted to be a part of this play. It was a, it was a blast to be a part of it. Um, and I think... We all like to be a part of a story that's bigger than ourselves. Have you noticed that the scriptures are chock full of stories? Jesus' teachings are in stories, in parables. The truth of God is not merely a recitation of facts. It's not just a laundry list of rules, regulations, codicils, and codes. It's a deeply compelling and beautiful story that's rich in de detail and bursting with insightful twists and turns, full of fascinating characters who are flawed and beautiful and sometimes mean and sometimes petty and ugly 
and sometimes noble and sometimes courageous, just like us. For the next four weeks, we're going to explore, we're going to explore the Christmas story through the eyes of the various characters that participated in it. Now, this series was taught by our former pastor, Dave Sharps, uh, in Christmas 2007. And I called him several months ago and asked him if he could send me this series because I just felt like I wanted to share this with you as we're about to you know, share our first Christmas together. I wanted us to just sort of root ourselves in this narrative, in this Christmas narrative, and, and Pastor Sharps was kind enough to send me all of his materials. So I am deeply indebted to him for, for these um, next four uh, sermons. The story of God is a story where the good, the bad, and the ugly are found right on the page. It's the story of undetermined lives, of those who sought God and found God and obeyed God and disobeyed God and lost God and served God and heard and ignored God and opposed God and betrayed and in grace returned to God and loved God. The story of God is a big story. It leaps off the page, and it grabs us and invites us and embraces us and even woos us to come in and join the incredible adventure called faith. It intersects and becomes entwined in our own lives, and it becomes entwined in God's divine purpose for each and every one of us. This is the Advent season, and, and Advent means God coming to us. That's what this is all about. During this Advent season, every week we're going we're gonna to ask God to help us find our place in his story. The story of Almighty God burrowing into flesh and becoming one of us. The Christmas story is packed with fascinating characters. Zachariah and Elizabeth, that's who we're going to talk about today. Herod, Caesar Augustus, Gabriel, Mary and Joseph, the shepherd, the wise men. When I was a kid, I thought uh, the little drummer boy was part of the scripture, and I was actually very disappointed to find out that he wasn't. Um, that's still my favorite claymation movie. Does anybody remember that? Yeah, I love that. Let's, let's learn that song. Can we do that? <laughs> um, in those folks' intersection with God, we find our stories intermingled as well. We have stories of pain, hope, mistrust, awe, confusion, deception, generosity, there are power struggles, there's paranoia, there's obedience, and ultimately, we see how God works through all of that to bring redemption to that world and also to our world. Like any good story, this story has a, a fascinating background, a fascinating context. Uh, you could say that it was, when Jesus came, it was in some respects, the best of times, in some respects, the worst of times. How so? What made it the best of times and the worst of times? So, when Jesus was born, it was, it was the time that Caesar Augustus was the ruler of Rome. Caesar Augustus was the seemingly invincible leader uh, of the Roman Empire at the time Jesus was born. He ruled from 29 B.C. to 14 A.D. and represented a dominating force the world over as he spread the empire across the globe. It was under Caesar Augustus that Rome achieved great glory. He restored peace after 100 years of civil war. He maintained an honest government, a sound currency. He extended the, the highway systems that connected Rome with all of the, um, 
colonies. He developed an efficient postal service. He fostered free trade among the provinces, built many bridges, aqueducts, uh, works of art. Literature flourished under Augustus um, with writers like Virgil and Horace and Ovid uh, living under the emperor's patronage. In this world, into that world, the gospel came. A world where travel was made easier by what they call Pax Romana, the Roman peace. A world where business thrived, a world where people from different countries and languages and cultures could come together and share ideas and beliefs. A marketplace of ideas, but only to a degree. You see, as long as certain lines were not crossed, you could share ideas, you could share beliefs, but there were there were parameters. The empire was expanding, uh, eventually from Great Britain to India. It was massive. But there was a dark side to the empirical uh, expansion because to maintain continuity across this vast region, across these diverse cultures and diverse languages, Caesar Augustus developed a mighty army, uh, and had to rule with a heavy rule of law that was backed by the sword. Everybody had to play nice with Rome, or else. The Romans felt indomitable, led by their powerful young emperor. In fact, just two years after the empire, after he was, uh, after he had brought the empire together, the Roman Senate bestowed on Augustus, uh, Caesar Augustus, the the title Augustus. His 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 original name was Octavian. Uh, but they bestowed upon him the title of Augustus. And Augustus from the Latin means to increase. To be, it, it means the illustrious one, the primary extender of the empire. One historian writes that the title Augustus was a title of religious rather than political authority. According to Roman religious beliefs, the title symbolized a stamp of authority over humanity and, in fact, over nature that went beyond any constitutional definition of his status. For this extender of the empire, the emperor of Rome was evolving into something more than a political leader. He was taking on the trappings of a deity. He was taking on the feeling that there should be no other gods before him. There should be no one quite like him. There should be no hint of anything near him that could threaten him being what all Rome had started to call him, Savior, Lord, God. Kenneth Scott Lacherette notes, it was natural that Augustus, who had brought peace to the distraught Middle East, should be hailed as an incarnation of deity. Statues of him were erected and religious ceremonies were instituted for him an imperial cult began to develop that was devoted to ensuring that no one challenged the authority of Caesar Augustus, Lord of the Empire, Savior of the world. So you have to lay that background against the story that's told in Luke. Lay it against centuries of struggle against a group of Jews who, once great and blessed, now had been living under hundreds of years of oppression, bondage, 
and occupation of empires from Babylon to Syria to Egypt and now Rome. To the Jews in the first century, the Roman government was just another imperial force that had come to, to enforce its power on, on, the, on the people there. Another kingdom that the Messiah, once he arrived, if he would just arrive, would crush. And as the power of the Romans expanded, so did their encroachment on all that the Jews held sacred. They hung, they hung symbols of deity on the temple. They allowed the Jews to continue to perform their religious ceremonies, perform their sacrifices, uh, just in, in a way to keep them content, but only if they would acknowledge that ultimate authority, ultimate power, abided with the emperor, not with God. So what does a first century Jew do who knows that he or she is a child of promise, who has heard the scripture that says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. What, what do you do? How do you maintain your faith when for the last several hundred years you've been oppressed by, by external forces and you just don't see where God is in this? You don't see where God is answering the promises that he gave to you. In the, in the face of the greatest empire in history, how do you believe? How do you trust? How do you maintain your faith? I think each one of us has at some times wondered whether God is with us. We've all wondered that. Whether our lives are part of something great and meaningful and beautiful, or whether we're just sort of an insignificant speck that's passing through existence. We've all wondered at some point, is God with us? Am I part of something bigger? Is there meaning? Is there something, something more to my life than just clocking in and clocking out and going to work and coming home and falling into the routine? We have all wondered, if is, is there something more to life than that? Are we part of something bigger? If you contrast this, this, this glorious figure of Caesar Augustus against the humble, world-weary, local priest named Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth. Zechariah, the, the person that we read about this morning, Zechariah was born into the priesthood, and his wife's dad was also a priest. They weren't wealthy. They weren't powerful. They weren't famous. They were nothing special. They were just a humble, elderly couple who served God the best they could day in and day out. They were faithful despite the great and lingering sorrow in their life. You see, despite their desire, Zachariah and Elizabeth were unable to have a child in their youth. The culture at that time was... Uh, rough on infertile couples. People talked. People wondered. Was it something they did? Was it some hidden sin? What's wrong with her? Maybe it's him. What's he hiding? That was the culture at the time. And so they drifted into old age with no child and no chance of having one, and people finally stopped talking, but the pain they carried with them every day lingered. And then it happened. 
Zechariah's division of priests were on temple duty. They drew lots to see who would go into the sanctuary to burn incense. And lots is basically a game of chance. It's like, it's like rolling the dice. Zechariah's lot came up. The townsfolk gathered around the temple as he entered the sanctuary, and they began to pray. Maybe they were praying for their families. Maybe they were praying for their children. Maybe they were praying that the Messiah would come and break the yoke of Roman bondage that cinched tighter around their necks each year. Zechariah stood alone in the sanctuary, the holy, pit, the holy place. It was quiet. And he brought with him his grief and his faithfulness and his deep awe and respect for the Almighty God. And he prayed. And he prayed for the will of God. He prayed for the salvation of Israel. He prayed for the position, from the position of his brokenness. He prayed from the perspective of his pain. He prayed in his confusion as Caesar and his empire got stronger and stronger and Israel seemingly further and further and further from deliverance. And when there was plenty of reason to be discouraged, he prayed. He prayed with hope. He prayed that God's plan would be fulfilled everywhere, in all ways, at all times. And he prayed with a faith, with a fervency, and with a heart in total and complete surrender to God. Have you ever come to God with your hopes and your fears and your dreams exposed? Have you come to him with your own sadness and your own disappointment and your own joy and your own questions? Have you found a place to offer up a humble prayer to God, a humble, simple prayer, opening your heart to God? If you haven't, I would strongly encourage you to do it. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open. Ask and you you shall receive. Zechariah was standing in the sanctuary and he heard his name, Zechariah. He looked up. Now, I don't know what angels look like, but I think they must be terrifying because every time in the scripture when someone sees an angel, their hearts melt with fear and the angels are always saying, Don't be afraid. And that's what the angel said here. The angel said, don't be afraid, Zechariah. I've come to tell you that your prayer will be answered. Your wife will have a child. And your child is going to bring you so much happiness. He's going to be a prophet, Zechariah. He's going to turn the hearts of the sons to their fathers. He's going to turn the hearts of the daughters to their mothers. He's going to turn the hearts of these people back to you. He's going to help save Israel. He's going to help save the world. And then Zechariah did what we all do when, when the possibility of something amazing and fantastic and beautiful and wonderful is about to happen. He doubted. And he said, how can this happen? And then Zechariah made the classic male blunder. He said, My wife, she is well along in years. (laughs) And the angel 
cursed him and made him turn into a ball of flame. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, the, the angel, <laughs> the angel, the angel uh, assured him that, that God would, be, uh, would honor his promise. Maybe you today have given up on believing that your prayer, whatever it is, that, that desire, that, that private, quiet, secret prayer that you have, maybe you've given up on hoping that that prayer would be answered. Maybe you think you're too old to start something new, too disappointed in life. Maybe you don't think you're smart enough or talented enough. Maybe you think you don't have what it takes to do anything of significance. Maybe your dreams have become dull against the grindstone of life. Maybe you don't think there's a role for you in the big play of God's story. Maybe the pain for you is loneliness and you aren't sure if anyone really cares. Maybe you've been betrayed. Maybe you've hoped for something that hasn't transpired. Maybe you dreamed your life would be somehow different than it is. Maybe you're tired of waiting on God. Maybe you tried to do things your own way and you've made a mess of your life and you're not sure that you can untangle it all. The story of Advent is the story of God coming to intertwine himself in your story, in your life. And like Zechariah and Elizabeth, there are probably a million reasons to be discouraged But what if there are a million and one reasons to be faithful? What if God has a plan for your life? What if in his timing, in his way, he is working all things together for your good? What if there is no such thing as a meaningless life when we love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength? And then we spill that love onto others, our neighbors, our friends, our enemies, our family, our spouse, our children. What if God really does want to be close to you? Nine months after Zachariah's encounter in the sanctuary, his wife Elizabeth gave birth to a little boy, a delightful boy, a loud boy, a boy whose name was John a boy who grew up to be the baptizer, who baptized Jesus and and heralded the entry of God into the world. John was not afraid of the Roman Empire. He pointed out the sin of its leaders without hesitation, and when he pushed too far, they took his life. But what he started could not be crushed with swords and spears. I don't know what miracle you need. I don't know what God, how God, where God wants to intersect with your life and intertwine your story with his. But I know this. He wants you to play a role in his big story. And there are no, the director was right, townsperson number 29, there are no small parts. There are no bit parts in God's big play. He has a role for you, a part for you to play, 
and you don't need a costume, and you don't need a mask, and like, like Billy Stevens, you don't need the curly wig and the, and the bass. He wants you to play yourself. He made you to play this role. Don't be afraid. The curtain is rising. The lights are dimming. Step on the stage and play your part. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have called us to be a part of your story, that you have come to be a part of our story. We're so thankful for Advent. We're thankful that this is a season where we celebrate God coming toward us. We're so thankful that you sent your Son to come into the world to be like us so that we can relate to you through him. We're so grateful, O oh God, for this miracle. We're so grateful for Christmas. We're so grateful that Jesus was born in a humble little manger so that we could connect with you through your son. We can connect with you through, through a man who was tempted in all ways like we are, who has suffered like we have suffered, who has felt pain and loneliness and fear and anxiety and dread and, and all of the things that we feel, he felt. And we're so thankful that you have come and, and, and intersected our world and become a part of our lives in the way that you have. And we ask you, Lord, just to help us to know and help us to acknowledge and help us to appreciate and enjoy being a part of your story. Whether it's a big part or a smaller part, we know that every part is important. We know that you've designed each and every one of us for your purpose. You have a calling on our lives. You have a destiny for each one of us. God, we are thankful, and we ask you, Lord, to give us the courage to step forward and to play our part in your big story. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.